Good morning, Arbor Church. I'm glad that you're here with us today, either in person, the few that we have here in person today, welcome. Thank you for being here. If you're joining online, we're glad that you're with us as well. My name is Scott. I'm one of the teaching um, members here at Arbor, and we're excited to continue our series, Letters to a Young Church. Today, we jump into the book of Galatians. We had just finished the book of 1 Thessalonians, and now we're moving into another letter from Paul um, called Galatians. Um, what you're going to notice today is that the tone of Galatians is much different than the tone of Thessalonians. However, the theme that we're focusing on right now continues to be the same of letters to a young church. And that theme is, the truths of then are the truths for now. The truths of then are the truths for now. And the idea is that, While these letters were written a long time ago to older churches, they're still relatable to our Christian walk in Christ and tenets of our faith today. As I mentioned, um, the tone of Galatians is much different than the tone of the letter to Thessalonians. This letter was written to an area called Galatia, specifically to a church in the Galatia area called Antioch, but the letter traveled around. That is in modern-day Syria, Turkey, Cyprus, to give you a little bit of an idea of in the region that we're dealing with where Paul did this ministry. The the tone of um, the book of Thessalonians was very encouraging, uplifting, praiseworthy, the church of Thessalonica, and all that they had been doing to continue in their faith and showing their faith in walking with God. The tone of the book to Galatians is very confrontational, um, debate-worthy, very direct, And the reason for this is because there had been a division amongst the way that the gospel was being presented. So you're going to hear two different tones in the book, but the truths that are shared are still very applicable to us today. We got a lot to walk through. Due to a snow day we had a few weeks ago, um, we had to to scrunch this series down, so we're not really diving into chapter one. I'm trying to cover chapters two and three today, which is around law versus faith. Law versus faith when it comes to salvation. And there's a lot of heavy theological doctrine in here to wade through and get through. So I'm going to do my best to get it done in under 90 minutes this time. I think we were at 85 minutes last service. That's a joke. That, that's not true. But that would be a heck of a sermon if I could actually... I don't think the problem is if I could teach that long. It's as if you'd actually remain interested for that long. Most people tune me out after about five minutes. So... We're going to try to delve into this, and there's a lot to cover, and I want to tell you that up front. This, there's not going to be a lot of my you know, wonderfully humorous Disney life stories applications through this. I'm going to try, but there's just a lot of meatiness, and I think that's okay. So we're going to kind of like slide up to a dinner table, and we're going to have a good old meat and potatoes, gravy, and bread dinner today, and just walk through some thick theological gospel. So let's pray and get me out of the way. Lord, I pray that you would just... Uh, Seriously, God, prepare me again for this message. I thank you for how you walked us through at first service, and each service is always a little bit different, but God, I pray that you literally would take my notes, my thoughts that you gave me, and rearrange them and present them in a way that is important to you for this service right now, God. I pray that you'd give us ears that want to hear, hearts that want to listen, and feet that want to apply what we learned today from your truths. Thank you, Jesus, and guide us through this. In Jesus' name, amen. I need to give you quite a bit of background as we dive into this. Before we dive into this topic and the tone of Paul and why he is so confrontational in background, 
Um, first of all, you need to know that Paul was a church planting missionary. This meant that he would go to a region, he would preach the gospel message of Jesus, people would come to Jesus and convert to Christianity, he would begin a church, he would disciple the members of that church, he would raise up leaders to then lead that church, and then he'd move to another region and, do the, and repeat the whole process over again. However, he stayed connected to the churches in the region by still pastoring them and supervising their growth and discipling them. And he did this through his letter writing to the different churches. And that's where we get the Pauline epistles that are almost more than half of the New Testament that if you look at that, and there's several of them in there. First and second Thessalonians were one of them. First and second Corinthians. And this one is Galatians. As I shared you, he's writing to a region that is modern day Turkey, Syria, and Cyprus. So he does this, and I want you to understand, all right, to know three things that are helpful about this. If you don't know these three things, it's going to be more difficult to understand the context from which Paul was coming. So let me un un um, outline these things to help better understand the letter of Galatians. One, the letter is addressing a spiritual, social, and racial division in the churches of Galatia. The first Christians in Jerusalem were Jewish, but the gospel spread out from Jerusalem and went to other regions around them. Jewish believers were coming to Christ that were called Gentiles. At the time of this letter being written, <clears throat> there were just as many Gentile believers as there were Jewish believers. However, in the midst of this, a group of Jewish Christians known as Judaizers had begun to teach churches in Galatia that in order to be a true Christian, it wasn't just salvation with Jesus, it was salvation with Jesus and the law. That they must be also fulfilling and following the Mosaic law called the Torah that was given to the Jews through Moses at Mount Sinai hundreds of years before. And this law is what separated the Jews from the rest of the regions around them and how they lived and stayed close to God. And so they were teaching that salvation plus the law is what these Gentiles needed to do. The second thing, oh, and the main topic, here's the uncomfortable word for the day. The main part of the law they were preaching, especially to, to the male believers, was circumcision. I, I know that's not a word we talk about in our messages very much, and I hope you don't go home and say, what's Scott speak about today? Oh, circumcision. But that was the essence of what the battle was coming down to in this, along with dietary laws, the Sabbath, and other things that were Jewish customs and beliefs connected to salvation. The second thing you need to know is that while this specific controversy of, of circumcision may seem remote and distant to us today, Paul addresses it with an enduring truth that still relates to what we're battling and struggling with in the church today. This cultural division and racial division and spiritual division is still happening in churches across our country and around the world. And a lot of it may not be about the particular things we're talking about today, but it is centered around other customs and traditions that we allow to split us and separate us under this banner of the gospel of Jesus. It is this different gospel that was creating this cultural division, this gospel of Jesus plus works that Paul is so adamantly defending and going. Therefore, anything, therefore, Paul feels like everything is at stake because of this false gospel that was being taught. The third thing you know is that in this letter to Galatian, Paul expounds in detail about how the gospel works. While the book of Romans could be called the dissertation 
of the salvation gospel message and the essence and the importance of Christ. And if you want to read more about this, you can go read the book of Romans and you can specifically look at Romans 7 and 8, which parallels Galatians. So what, the book of Romans is the doctoral dissertation on this. The book of Galatians is like the modern day TED talk of this, where it's Paul's emotions up front. It's a very short but brief and detailed and dense response to how salvation cannot be polluted by works. And he's not only writing this for non-Christians and the initial salvation into Christ, his message is that if you pollute that moment of salvation, you are polluting all the Christianity that comes after that. In other words, if you make salvation Jesus plus the law, that is going to pollute the rest of your Christian walk and you might as well throw Christ out with it. That's why he's so adamant. So Paul is defending, all right, that the same thing he had been defending ever since in his ministry, that it's Jesus and nothing else. He condemns any teaching that is not based on these two truths. These were tantamount to Paul. We are too sinful to contribute to our own salvation. We are too sinful to contribute to our own salvation. We are in desperate need of a rescuer and a redeemer. The second truth that is tantamount to him is we are saved by belief in Jesus' work. Nothing else. Not our own work, not man's work. We are saved by the belief in what Jesus did through for us in his death, resurrection. That is tantamount to Paul and the gospel, and it was being undermined. See, Christianity had begun as this Jewish messianic movement in the heart of Jerusalem, but it expanded the regions beyond it. And as I said, there are now more non-Jewish believers than possibly Jewish believers. It's a church that we often put on a pedestal that they had all their stuff together. They were Peter, Paul, and James were the three leaders of the New Testament church. They were apostles. James was the brother of Jesus. They had walked with Jesus. They had lived with Jesus. And even under their leadership, this false doctrine was creeped. Quick connection to church today is how are we any different? How is it even in our churches today that some of these false doctrines, these false teachings, these these within our churches around the country and the world that have dissolved the truth of Jesus into something it never was intended to be? And that's what was happening here. These Judaizers were telling people, you have to follow the law, the Torah, in order to be a true believer. And for many Jewish Christians, the shame was they believed this and were doing exactly that. They were, the males were getting circumcised. They were changing their dietary habits. And what the Jewish people weren't realizing is the law was no longer active. It was more customs and traditions to help you in your walk if you wanted to follow them, but not required for salvation. And so Paul, all right, found out about this and was brokenhearted. And not only was he brokenhearted, he was confounded and angry. So he pinned this letter to the churches in Galatia in direct opposition to this false gospel. So when you read this, that's where Paul's coming from. This goes against the core belief of what brought him to Christ. The core message that he'd been preaching at this point for over 14 years now, with profound, profound growth. And it was being eroded and dragged back into works and performance, which is nowhere in the gospel message. We read in Galatians 1, you can see this when Paul begins right away in verse 6, he says to the Galatian church, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ 
and are turning to a different gospel. In other words, shame on you, Galatian church. You are deserting the grace of God and stepping back into your own works and performance of the law. That is not what I taught you. He was angry at the gospel of Christ was being undermined by these Judaizers. He spends all of chapter one and most of chapter two not only defending the message of the gospel, but his authority to preach it. Because apparently now there was a division upon, oh, well, this is what Paul preaches, but this is what the apostles in Jerusalem preach. Who are you going to believe? This radicalized guy named Paul who used to kill us or the three apostles that walked with Jesus in Jerusalem? So there was a great division and believers were confused. Do we not live in a world today where when you mention Christianity or the Bible of church, you get a thousand different opinions because the enemy has sown confusion and Paul did not want that, all right? So he had actually went to Jerusalem, we're gonna find out, and he met with the apostles to try to get all this clarified. And we're gonna look at that in a little bit. You can read all about this in Acts chapters nine through 11. I encourage you to do that. In fact, read the book of Acts. It's a beautiful story of the New Testament church and the journeys of Paul and his missionary journey and how finally the church came to an agreement and unification under God about the true gospel message. And what I think is interesting is if the people that had lived with Jesus watched Jesus crucified, saw Jesus risen again, preached the first salvation message within a matter of 20 years post-Jesus, we're getting the message convoluted and wrong, should we not be that much more diligent today that we're not doing the same thing? If you can mess it up within the first generation, look at how much we've messed it up in all the generations since then. That's why it's relevant to us today. There's two main characters that play central stage in this, chapter, this, in this book today, and you need to know about both of them. We've talked a little about the first one, which is Paul, but let me remind you a little about, about Paul. Paul was a Pharisee. He'd grown up in the Pharisaical school. He had trained to be a rabbi. He had been promoted and elevated to a position of leadership where he was the lead person traveling around persecuting and killing Christians post-Jesus during the modern, during the New Testament movement. He was the one that stood and held the coats while Saul was stoned, the first mart- while Stephen was stoned, the first martyr. That was, Paul, that was Paul, formerly known as Saul. That's what he came from. And then on the road to Damascus, where he's going to persecute more Christians, Jesus knocked him to the ground, confronted him, and Paul had a conversion testimony with Jesus right there. He came to repentance knowledge of Jesus and turned his life over to God. He then went into the desert. He then spent some time alone. He got revelation directly from God. Paul was adamant that I did not get my discipleship and training from the apostles. I got it directly from God. So what I'm preaching you today didn't come from men. It came from God. And he was constantly challenged on that by people. So that's Paul and where he's coming from. On the other side of the equation is our good old friend Peter. Remember Peter had Nike breath all the time, always putting his foot in his mouth. Sorry, that's a bad dad joke. Sorry. Nobody laughed. I get it, but it'll be. But Peter, we know Peter, one of the most, you know, outspoken, gregarious disciples there was. He walked with Jesus. He denied Jesus. He confessed to Jesus. He preached the first gospel message in Jerusalem, and 3,000 people came to Christ, and that was the first church. 
And from that point on, he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, speaking, baptizing, bringing Jews to Christ. And yet we also know in Peter's story in Acts 9 that he was taking a nap one day on the roof of a home when God gave him a vision. This, this big sheet dropped down, filled with animals that the Jews called unclean according to the law and would not eat because of the law. And God told Peter, Peter, eat and partake with me. And Peter in the vision said, no, God, I have never eaten or touched anything unclean and I won't now. And then Jesus said something profound in the vision to Peter. He said, what I have made clean, do not call unclean. It took three times for Peter to have the same vision before he began to ponder and think, oh, maybe God's trying to tell me something when suddenly someone knocked at his door. And this random servant was standing there saying, I've been sent to get Peter by my master, Cornelius, a centurion, Roman, Gentile, who believes in Christ, but wants Peter to come preach the word. The light went on in Peter's head. Oh, so he traveled with the servant to Cornelius' home, went into a Gentile home. Holy cow, that was against the wall law right there. Sat and ate with them, heard their story, preached the message of them, and lo and behold, to Peter's mind, they accepted Christ and were filled with the Holy Spirit that he had thought was reserved just for the Jews, and now he's seen it in the Gentiles. I'm telling you, folks, this was a paradigm shift for the New Testament church. And he went back to Jerusalem and shared this message with the apostles, and they celebrated because they're like, the Messiah truly is for all people, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of region and background. The Messiah is for all people. Peter learned it and lived it, so he knew the truth of the gospel. So Paul and Peter both knew the gospel was Jesus plus nothing else for all people. And yet we find ourselves not a few short years removed from Peter's vision that this false gospel is going out of the church of Jerusalem. That's where we find ourselves. And it all culminates in a city called Antioch where Barnabas was sent by the apostles years earlier to begin a ministry. And Barnabas got to Antioch and heard about this guy named Paul, went and found him, brought him to Antioch, and for years, him and Paul traveled and worked together to build churches in the Galatia region. And that's where this story culminates, is in Antioch. And so they went there to investigate, and Peter went there to see what was going on. And while Peter was there, he was hanging out with the Gentiles and eating with them again, because he had been told by God that's okay. So it's on these critical stories of Paul and Peter that the letter to the Galatians is written, that the context of the letter is established. The central theme of Galatians is this. How is a person saved and justified? Is it by works of the law or by faith? How is a person justified and saved? Is it by the works of the law or by faith? Almost everything Paul writes in this book will be to answer those questions. And if you do not understand this as a starting point for Paul's letter and arguments, you'll probably misconstrue his, misconstrue his statements. So let's dive into chapter two. I just said a lot, and we're going to read a lot of scripture today. And I'm going to try to lighten it up with some data humor and some stories, but I'm just telling you right now, we're going to go through a lot today. And this is good theology. And I hope it feels beneficial to you. So here we go. Let's start in Galatians 2, verse 1. 
Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. So don't forget, Paul's been out here doing this ministry for over 14 years now with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. We're going to come back to that at the end of the sermon. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed leaders, Peter, James, and John, I presented them with the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Pause. This gets misinterpreted a lot. This does not mean Paul went to Jerusalem to meet with Peter, James, and John to see and confirm if what he was teaching was correct. No, 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 no. That's not what Paul meant here. Paul knew that what he was preaching was correct. Jesus plus nothing is salvation. Jesus plus anything else is false doctrine. What he's saying here is, if we add anything to salvation other than it's all Jesus, all his death, all his grace, all his mercy, then everything I've been doing these years is in vain because everything I'm doing is because of Christ. And if you remove Jesus from salvation and add works along with it, then there's no need for Jesus. And if there's no need for Jesus, there's no need for a Christ in my life, and then everything I'm doing is pointless. We're right back where we started from, a vanity of vanities, the chasing of the wind to try to impress people. That's the slavery a rabbi understood better than anybody else. And that's why he's saying, I'm trying to go to them saying, if you don't get this message, everything we're doing is pointless because you're throwing Jesus out and bringing works in. You need to understand that, folks. Have you gotten to a point in your Christian life where it's just routine and duty and performance and Jesus is nowhere in it? And if you've lost that, then it's just vanity. It's just to impress others. And Paul could not stomach that. So he goes on. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. So he's saying, look at this young man, this believer. They've been telling him he has to get circumcised, but he's not going to do it. This matter arose because some of the false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul is saying salvation plus works is slavery. Freedom in Christ is salvation in Jesus only. Let's not go back to being enslaved by the law. As for those who were held in high esteem, the apostles, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They'd add nothing to my message. Powerful statement here. Powerful because Paul is saying, church, I know that you hold the apostles, Peter, James, and John, and the others in high esteem, and you should. But let me tell you something. Their their position and authority in the church means nothing to me if their doctrine's wrong. I will confront them just as I would confront anybody on the streets. Do not let man's position in earthly religion stop you from confronting something that's not true. We are called to defend the gospel of Christ. And if that means the bishop, the priest, the pastor, whoever it is you operate under is preaching something that's false, it needs to be confronted. Paul was not besmirching the the apostles. He was not trying to say we shouldn't listen to them. He was saying in Christ, we have authority to stand on the truth. Use that authority. 
And he says, they added nothing to my message. So after talking with them, the apostles, they go, you're right. There's nothing we can argue with you about. You are right. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, the Jews. For God who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised was also at work with me as an apostle to the Gentiles. Peter, James, and John, the three esteemed pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They joined arms finally. Can you believe? Have you ever heard that there was this big of a division in the New Testament church? You don't hear that very often. Paul was not immediately embraced. His gospel was questioned. It wasn't until this meeting that they finally locked arms and said, you're right, it's under this banner of Jesus plus nothing else that we can all move forward. All right? They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. The main issue was that Judaizers were telling Gentiles their salvation was not valid unless they were following the Mosaic law. The Jews followed the customs of the Jewish law and lived by the law under the banner of faith, of Jesus' death, resurrection, and salvation. However, the Gentiles did not follow the customs of the law and lived under the banner of freedom in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. A key difference. The key point here that Paul was making is this. The death of Jesus was the death of the law. The death of Jesus was the death of the law. And when Jesus rose again, he didn't rise again as the law, he rose again as the redeemer, the freedom. He broke the shackles of the law, set the prisoners free, and we are now free in Christ as new creatures under a new covenant and a new law. That was radical. And he finally got everybody on the same page. And now he had to go back and correct it and address it because he was not going to let this tiny little thing that is a big thing begin to change the church. So how does this show up in churches today, Scott? Before we move on, you're thinking, well, we don't worry about circumcision today. A lot of us aren't trying to follow kosher dietary laws. You might do to be healthy. There's nothing wrong with that. We're not, the Sabbath has become this fluid thing in society today with people and work schedules and stuff, and we're not as ritual as about, but how, what does all this have to do with us today? Well, let me give you three examples and how it shows up in some churches today. Some churches, it is implicitly or explicitly taught that you are saved through your surrender and choosing of Christ, plus your beliefs and your behaviors after that. This idea of you giving your life to Jesus or asking him into your life can push against this grace-first principle of Jesus and salvation. I'm not going to get on the details with you out. That's a great lunchtime conversation. But the point is this. It can begin to lead people to believe that if my conversion experience isn't rooted in enough of true repentance, true this, true that, or I didn't perform enough at my moment of salvation, maybe I wasn't really saved. And then if the salvation is contingent upon how well I behave after that to maintain and keep my salvation, I'm living under this weightiness that I can't do. And this is where I see in young people this constant thing of, maybe I wasn't really saved. I need to go back and say the prayer again. I need to go back and do this again. If I just need to spend more time doing that. I, I get this. I understand how that can happen. 
And what Paul is saying here is no. The gospel says we're saved through faith. This approach makes Christ's performance the Savior. It's not the level of our faith that gets us saved. It's the faith in what he did for us. And the faith of a mustard seed can move a mountain. You will never have more faith in your life than the moment you put your faith in Christ. That is the most highest level of faith you give as I'm giving, I'm putting my faith in what Jesus did for me, not what I can do for you. And we get it warped so quickly all the time. Here's another thing that happens in churches. Some churches, it's taught that it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're a good and loving person and believe in God. Well, first of all, Satan believes in God. So do the demons. They interact with him on a regular basis. But if you're just good enough and you love people and you're kind to people and you're doing good deeds and you're doing this and that, then you're in. There's two flaws with this. First, it teaches that good works are enough to get to God. If all good people can know God and salvation, then Jesus' death is not necessary. It was not needed. If all it takes is virtue and good effort, the problem is that bad people really have no hope then. Are there any bad people? Are there any good people? Making the gospel exclusive and not inclusive, that's not the cross. Second flaw with this is it encourages us to think that if we are tolerant and open, then we are pleasing to God. We don't need grace. We can get eternal life for ourselves. The gospel, however, challenges people to see their sin, for all have sinned. The wages of sin is death. No man comes to God but by me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is not very tolerant thinking. Let me get you straight with something today. There's a difference between being accepting, loving, kind, and welcoming and being tolerant of things that aren't true. There's nothing wrong with being intolerant about untruth, especially when it comes to the gospel message. And that's where Paul's coming from. And finally, more personal to me, Some churches are just extremely intolerant of anything that goes against their own customs or traditions. It's called legalism. Anything that becomes ritualized and elevated in the church as a rule that you have to follow, and it feels like it's part of your performance for salvation or after salvation, is not the gospel. I grew up under this. I was laughing with Jonathan after first service. I had to I had to hide some cassette tapes I had that had rock and roll music on it. Didn't matter if it was Christian rock and roll or worldly rock and roll. It had drums and guitars in it, and that's not good. I used to record. I put a tape in the old cassette jam, you know, the boom box I had, and I'd record the top 40. And then I'd hide the tape in my car somewhere because I could listen to the songs, but that was the devil's music. And it got, one of my tapes got found by a friend's mom, and she turned me into the school that I was at, the Christian school, my parents, and I got in a lot of trouble. Let me tell you, I understand the intent of trying to protect your children from the world, but let me tell you what that living like did for me for decades of my life. It put me in the situation of, am I ever good enough for God? Am I ever good enough? Am I doing it well enough? Are you proud of me, God? What can I do to be closer to you? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? And God finally shouted through me to the darkness saying, stop trying to do and be in fellowship with me because of what I did for you. I'm telling you, it messes people up. 
And if you're putting works at the moment of justification, you're polluting sanctification the rest of your life because it'll be performance-driven. And that is not the gospel. And it angered Paul because he lived that for half his life and he was never going back to it. So let's pick up in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. When Cephas came to Antioch, that's another name for Peter, all right, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Man, that is a powerful word to say about one of the leaders of the church. For before certain men came from James, that's Jesus' brother, he used to eat with the Gentiles. It's interesting, these Judaizers were the ones discipled by James. And they were doing this behind James's back or with James' knowledge, we don't know. But when they arrived, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. <clears throat> Poor Peter. This is the pattern in life. You would think that the new Peter wouldn't make these mistakes. He put his foot in his mouth all the time with Jesus. Jesus called him Satan once and get to behind him. He, did, he denied Christ three times. And now he's already been to Cornelius' house. He's the one that told the church we need to accept the Gentiles. So he went to Antioch. He's mingling with the Gentiles, eating with them, going to their homes, hanging out with them. But the minute these Jewish Christians arrive, he gets nervous and he steps away from the Gentiles. But that's not the most egregious part for Paul. Here's what it is. Listen to this. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy. So that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Don't forget, Barnabas started the church in Antioch. He brought Paul in with him, and him and Paul had been partners for 14 years. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Peter got called out publicly by Paul. Not just for the gospel not being true that he was preaching, when the Judaizers were preaching, but because Peter, a leader of the church, in his leaning towards and aligning himself with this false gospel, was pulling other believers down the wrong path with him. And Paul couldn't do that. No, you are not taking 14 years of ministry, me teaching these people the truth, and warp it in one weekend by teaching them they have to obey the law. Not going to happen. You know, getting called out publicly is never very comfortable. I told you about the church I grew up in, and, you know, two of the big tenets in Christian churches that you never did was, uh, you know, you never, uh, you never uh, played cards, and uh, they didn't believe in dancing, all right? Or sex before marriage, because sex before marriage might lead to dancing. All right? So they didn't believe it. That was a bad joke. So you'll get that on the drive home somewhere in there. All right? <laughs> um, but I'm saying that to help you understand the weirdness of how things rated in the church of right or wrong. But two of the big ones were drinking and smoking. You just didn't do that if you're a Christian. You didn't do it. And my dad was a smoker most of my childhood growing up. Now, he was very private about it. He tried to quit multiple times. It was something he did that he was not proud of. Um, but we, know that he, we knew that he smoked, but people of the church didn't know. The elders and the pastor didn't know. And every Sunday after church, we'd get a bunch of people, and we'd all go out to dinner, because that's what good Christians did. After church, you go to dinner together. And we were at dinner, and the elders were there, some of the elders and some of the other esteemed people in the church, and we're all eating. And the waitress came over and looked at my dad and said, sir, would you like a beer? I don't know why. She just thought maybe he wanted a beer. He looked like a beer-drinking guy. And my little brother, JJ, who was probably four at the time, piped up as loud as he could from the other end of the table, beer, 
my daddy don't drink beer. He just smokes cigarettes. My mom got beat red. My dad set up more straight. People kind of looked awkwardly down at their tables. All right? Very uncomfortable for my poor dad. All right? But the point is nobody likes to get called out publicly. So why, why would Paul do this? And it was not to humiliate Peter. It was not to put Peter in his place. It was to call out the hypocrisy and say again, once and for all, stop, because the death of Jesus was the death of the law. We are not dragging works back into this Christianity that's been a strain on the necks of Jews in their religion for centuries. It's what enslaved us in Egypt. It's what enslaved us in the desert. And we're not going to let it enslave us again. Paul was adamant. He was angry. And rightly so. So we pick up in verse 15. Paul says this. We who are Jews, myself, Peter, James, John, all the apostles, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law wasn't called the Gentile sinful. He was using that, this was said almost like tongue-in-cheek, like, oh, church, you know those sinful Gentiles? You know those people, church, you're always pointing your fingers out? Those people over there? This is what he's saying. He goes, we're not justified by the works of the law. We know that. But by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith through Christ and not by the works of the law, because the works of the law, no one will be justified. He goes, church, these very people that you're pointing to to follow the law, you're in rebellion against what you know is true anyway, that we're not justified by the law. Were your parents, were your grandparents, were your ancestors? No. So stop the hypocrisy. Shame on you. Paul uses a term here called justified. It's a good old Old Testament word that he loved to use, and it meant three things. To be justified meant to be in right relationship with God. To be forgiven and given a place in God's family. It meant being transformed by God's grace. Paul is stating his conviction that no one can be justified by following the commands of the Torah or the law, but only by faith in Jesus, not by works, not by anything we can do. The theological issue is how a person is justified by, before God, by the law or by faith. Paul is not appealing just to unbelievers' moment of salvation. He goes, if you put the works on that, the reason it matters is because it influences everything that we as believers are now. It takes away everything we stand on. The reason they kept the law was because it was their culture and their way of life. But sometimes the Jews would slip back into their old thinking about their observance of the law, that it was somehow enough to make them more holy and right in God's eyes. Are we any different in our judgment of others if they don't live up to our expectations, our standards, our ideas? Paul's logic is relentless. He continues on. He says, they hadn't thought it through because being good doesn't justify us or sanctify us for heaven. We are saved by Jesus dying for our sins, period. That's the end of the story. While the law is good, it doesn't save us. It isn't the core of the gospel. The law pointed to the core of the gospel, and that is the Messiah, the Jesus that died for us. Paul's main other point is this. Salvation is through what Jesus did, 
not what we did. Salvation is through what Jesus did, not what we did or can do. He continues. I know, I told you there's going to be a lot of verses we're going through today. Verse 19. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In salvation, you put yourself to death, and you now become a new creature in Christ to live for Christ. Paul said all the time, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. The life I now live in today, I live by faith in the Son of God, not the law, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. He keeps coming back to this point. So the reason anyone can say they're right with God or righteous or justified is because we belong to God's covenant of belief and faith in my son and what he does for you. Paul was adamant that the death and resurrection of Jesus is why we are able to enter the salvation to be justified, not by anything we do. I already told you our sin is so strong we need a redeemer. In the Old Testament, it's called a kinsman redeemer. Go read the book of Ruth. We've taken on so much sin and debt, there's nothing we can do to eradicate it. So someone's got to come along and take it on for us. And that's what Jesus did. This brings us up to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, he begins again by saying, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has put you under the spell? Who has got you delusioned? Before your very eyes, <clears throat> sorry, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed and crucified. In other words, you know the truth. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing in what you heard? In other words, when you heard the message and you surrendered and entered into relationship with Christ, was there anything you had done up to that point to deserve that invocation from Jesus? Was there anything you had done to earn the right of God to invite you into covenant with him? Is there anything you had done up to that point for Jesus to even say, I died for you? No. So then why do you think you can do anything after that to earn things from him? We can't. <clears throat> it's not possible. He continues on. Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? This goes back to what I just told you. If you believe that salvation is simply by what Jesus did in his grace and mercy, then why in our sanctification do we drag works right into it? It is just as insulting to Jesus to do that as if you told him, I don't need you for salvation. Be very careful to live the road that says, in order for me to stay with Jesus, I have to live a certain way. I am not promoting this golden ticket salvation mentality. I'm not saying that. But be very careful how you judge. Because if you tie performance and works to sanctification, you might as well tie it to justification. And the reverse is true as well. Where, is it, where in our justification and sanctification are we operating in the flesh to build our standing with the Spirit? Let me ask you that again. Where in our justification and sanctification am I operating in the flesh to build my standing with God? That's what needs to be examined. Paul continues to break this down. 
and he does something brilliant here. He knows he's writing to people that know all about Jewish customs. He's writing to the Jews as well, and he's calling Peter out. So he goes right back to the pinnacle, the very elevation of the patriarchs, the one that they all look up to, and that's Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. And so he's going to use the highest authority that any of them ever look back on, the biggest man of faith that created the whole Jewish nation and brought Jesus the Messiah through his lineage, Abraham, and he uses him as an example. Watch this. Verse 6, I mean, yeah, verse 6 of chapter 3. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited him as righteousness. Pause. There was no law even written when Abraham believed in God. There was no Jewish nation when Abraham believed in God. There was nothing in Abraham before he believed in God. Understand that. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Because Hebrews tells us it's by faith Abraham was credited righteousness. Not the law. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. All nations, all ethnicities, all races. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. He just dismantled it. And if you don't think this was a stubborn point in the Jewish culture, it's why they killed Christians. Go look at Stephen, the story of Stephen, who Paul watched get martyred. He called out the people of that city for killing the Messiah, the child of Abraham, and they stoned him for it. This is where Paul is so brilliant. Because he uses the story of someone they respect to say to them, even he wasn't justified by works of the law because there was no law. And your whole nation came from him. So this whole idea of the law that you're holding it so high and holy doesn't hold any water. He goes in in verse 11. Clearly then, no one who relies on the law is justified before God. Because the righteousness will live by faith, just like Abraham did. The law is not based on faith. The law is based on works and performance. He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. Through who? Christ Jesus. So that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Paul is saying loud and clearly, our next point, salvation is through faith in Jesus alone. Salvation is through faith in Jesus alone. And if that's true, then sanctification is through Jesus alone. Yes, we are called to live a righteous life and a holy life, but not to earn something, but to give something so that we can be in better relationship with Christ. Paul says this more clearly in Ephesians 2, and he says, For by faith are you saved as the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. So then we ask ourselves very quickly as we wrap up, then why did he give us the law? What was the point? I'm sure the Jews were standing up going, well, then what? We followed the law for over centuries now. Then why did he give us the law? What what are you talking about here? Again, go to Romans chapter 7 and 8 for a bigger backdrop and understanding. I'll give you the Cliff Notes versions right here. Verses 21 and 22. Paul answers this. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? In other words, 
Does the law not point to God's promises and prosperity? No. He goes, absolutely not. It's fine. But for if the law had been given that can impart life, then righteousness would certainly come by the law. He's saying the law is not bad, but it doesn't bring us righteousness. You should see that, Jewish people. All of us to see that you follow the law for all these years, but it's not brought you any closer to righteousness. But Scripture has locked everything up under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. There's two roles the law played. One role was this magnifying glass to show people their desperate need for a Savior because you can't fulfill the law. You can try and try and try, but you're in bondage to your own sin. And as long as you're in bondage to sin, you can never fulfill the law because you're sinful. So what was the law's purpose? Well, God wanted his Jewish people to try to honor him by they lived, so he served as these guardrails to keep them on this path and focused on the Messiah. And even with those guardrails in place, they veered off all the time throughout the Old Testament. They'd walk away from God, come back all the time. So the point Paul is making here is like, look, even with the law, you couldn't get righteousness. So he concludes with these two verses. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is, this, this, is phenom- this is like paradigm shifting in his time. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. He just hit the three biggest social divisions that culturally were in place at that time. He's saying all of you, all you peeps are justified through Christ, not by anything you do. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. For Paul, requiring non-Jewish adherence to the law makes no sense. It is acting if Jesus did not fulfill God's promise or deal with our sins, and we might as well make Jesus and the story of his death and resurrection irrelevant. So what does this have to do with us today? I want to go back to Titus. I want to go back to my story. I grew up in a church that I came to know Christ under. It gave me a solid foundation of the scripture. I will forever treasure that. But what it didn't teach me is that there's nothing I can do to earn from God anything. Because I am unworthy. But in my unworthiness, Christ on the cross made me worthy of a relationship with him. Because it's in relationship that we all crave things. We all crave for relationship. We all have the need to love and be loved, the need to belong, and the need to feel worthwhile. And this drive to feel worthwhile is embedded in every one of us. It drives all of us in what we do every day of our lives. And that natural craving we have to feel like we belong and feel worthwhile creeps its way into the way we live out our Christianity. And we begin living in this performance-driven thing, and we hold it over our own heads. And we're never good enough. I didn't do enough of that. I didn't do that well enough. I should have done this. Look what they're doing. Oh, they're not doing that, so maybe I shouldn't. Oh, they're doing this, or maybe I should be doing it. And we become so caught up in this works-based faith that we're no different than the Jewish people that are living under the law back then. We're making our own laws today. And that's why Titus matters. That's why Paul brought Titus. Because Titus was a Greek. He was a Gentile. He was Paul's direct disciple that would soon take over churches. And he stood before the apostles and they could not argue with the proof of the Holy Spirit filled Titus in his story. 
And what happens with us too often as Christians is we isolate ourselves into our own bubble of what we've been taught our whole lives or what we've constructed in our minds as to what Christianity and salvation, justification, and sanctification look like. And we need to get out of that bubble and encounter other stories. What that looked like for me is when I was in seventh grade, some neighbors moved in next door to us called the Lunsfords. They came to Idaho from California, saved out of the drug and rock and roll scene to start a church. They were radical. They played drums, guitars, musically talented, some of the most musically talented people I know. Their oldest son, Shane, and I became best friends all through high school. Still one of my dearest friends in life. Married one of my other best friends, Bonnie, from high school. I remember going to church with them, and there was a full band on stage, drums, guitar, worship, dancing in the aisles. Hand, and I was like blown away. I'm sitting in the back going, this is not right. This is wrong. I really thought that. I was nervous. I was afraid my parents would find out I went to church there. I soon learned from the Lunsfords that there's this freedom in Christ that I had never known. I did not, I did not realize how tied up and imprisoned I was to these legalistic expectations and laws that had been put on me with good intentions by loving parents. That haunted me for decades after that, people, I'm telling you. I never believed that salvation was by anything but Jesus, but I sure didn't pull performance and works out of the whole sanctification part. Here's my conclusion for you today. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Freedom. Jesus plus anything else equals slavery and death. The church of Galatia faced a choice between two choices, two gospels, two ways of approaching relationship with God. On one side were the teachers who told these young Christians that their performance mattered. To be right with God, you need to be right with the law. On the other side were the people that followed Paul's teaching. All right? He said the only performance that mattered was Christ on the cross. After that, we have freedom to live in Christ through faith. It's faith in what he did. What gospel they followed mattered. What gospel we follow matters. The choice between the gospel of Christ alone and the choice between the gospel of Christ plus whatever, fill in the blank. This false one can be attractive because it makes us feel worthy like we're doing something, but it's deadly. The one with Christ plus nothing seems too easy and simple, but it's freedom. It's a decision that will impact your sanctification. So my question is, which gospel are you following? Let's pray. Wow, God, that was a long sermon. That was a lot of words out of my face, and I'm really thirsty. But my hope, God, is that your message came forth. My hope, God, is that I was moved out of the way and something was taken out of this. The fact, God, I would hope is that we are nothing without you. We are nothing without you. And it's because of you and our faith in you that we become something. 
Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you, Jesus, for rising again. And thank you, God, for extending your grace and mercy to us. May we not take all that you've done and chain it back up to works and performance. But at the same time, God, may we strive to live a holy life that's pleasing to you and honors you. I pray for those that heard the message today, God, that you would give them something they take away from this. In Jesus' name, amen.